our uh, series in 2 Thessalonians, we were encouraged and exhorted by the Apostle Paul to become, to stand firm and also to, um, to hold fast or st stand firm and to hold tight uh, our faith, faith to be grounded in our faith and to know what we believe. And I had challenged and encouraged some of you who had never been through a one-on-one -on -one type of Bible study to do that. Um, we've got a, the list in the back of those who signed up to be leaders and those who wanted to go through the program. And it's very awkward to try to pair people up. So if you signed up to take somebody through it, I would like you to, at the end of uh, this morning to go to the back. Uh, Mark or Dave Dunn will be back there. And uh, this, the sheets will be there. Look at the people who signed up to participate. See if there's someone that you know and that you'd want to lead through a Bible study like that. Put your name next to it. And uh, also the material was here for those of you who have already hooked up with, with um, another person or two. Um, if you're a leader and are going to lead somebody through the study, there's a leader, leader material, there's a leader book, and there's also the first book that the person you're leading through will participate in. So grab the leader book, grab the first book for yourself, and if the person that you're leading isn't here today, grab that book for them as well. Or if you are here, just grab that book for yourself and uh, you can get started in that program. And uh, at the end of all of that, I'll try to make sense of who's left and who still hasn't got hooked up with anyone, and then I'll get, get to you on that. Um, the story is told of a, of a man whose name, we'll just call him Scott, who uh, had received a parrot for his birthday. And uh, the problem was the bird was an adult parrot with a bad attitude and even worse vocabulary. And uh, unfortunately, this, this bird had... Uh, come up with the vocabulary and every other word was a, an expletive. Uh, his attitude was bad, his language was horrendous, and uh, Scott, as he received this for his birthday present, wasn't exactly sure how, how to go about changing this bird's attitude and vocabulary. So he tried to encourage the bird to say the right things, he tried to talk nice to it, he tried to talk to it in a way that was more soothing and not harsh. Um, he, he tried everything he could think of and this bird still had the worst attitude and the worst vocabulary you've ever heard. So finally, in frustration, one day he grabbed the bird and he thought, well, this isn't really getting anywhere. And uh, he tweaked the bird's beak every time it would swear and that didn't do anything. And, and finally, out of frustration, he grabbed the bird and he opened the refrigerator freezer, the freezer part, and he stuck the bird in the freezer and he shut the door. And this bird is going nuts in there. This parrot's screaming, yelling, banging on the door with its beak. It's yelling swear words at the guy. It's yelling, you're a pathetic excuse for a human being. Open the door. What's wrong with you? What do you think you're doing? And all of a sudden, there's silence. I mean, it's just silent. And Scott's feeling a little bad at this point. He's thinking, oh, no, I killed the bird. So, so he goes over and he opens the door and he sticks out in hand and out walks the parrot onto his arm. He says, I'm so sorry for everything I've ever done. And my behavior's been uncalled for. It's, it's out of line. And I'll endeavor the best way I know how to make sure that I clean up my vocabulary and I have a better attitude. And Scott's just amazed by all this, and he's ready to ask this parrot, what in the world changed his mind? And all of a sudden he goes, and if it wouldn't be too much trouble, would you mind if I ask, what did the chicken do wrong? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what. <clears throat> That's one smart bird. You know, what's interesting is, is that, you know, as we continue in our study of events that are leading up to the death, the burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will again meet uh, some folks who could learn a lot from that parrot. In fact, uh, yet several of these folks, as we're going to see, in spite of the overwhelming evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world, that he was the long-awaited promised one of God, they refused to recognize him as such. 
Even though the evidence was there, they weren't willing to confess and agree with God. They certainly weren't willing to repent and to turn from their own agenda to follow God's. And as a result, they missed one of the greatest opportunities that they had to come into a right relationship with God. Now, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and the momentum has been building along this trip. And as they travel, there's a certain sense of excitement and anticipation that we've talked about in the last couple of sessions, but I want to refresh your memory. And there's good reason for all of this excitement. It was as if to top off everything else that Jesus had done up to this point in his ministry, we had seen that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead was a turning point in the ministry of not only Jesus Christ, but also was a turning point in the uh, opposition of those who, uh, who did not agree with Jesus, nor did they want to align themselves with him. And it said that because of this event that they had dedicated themselves at that point to finding a way to put him to death. And so as Lazarus walked around a breathing, walking, breathing, living testimony of the miracle of Christ, they were continually reminded of the claims that he had made and that were made about him. And so there's some excitement that goes along with that. And as they approached Jericho, the eyes of a blind beggar were opened as he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And as they're approaching Jericho, this blind beggar calls out and his eyes are opened according to the prophet Isaiah 61. It says that when the Messiah came, would come, that he would even open the eyes of the blind. And again, there was evidence that he was who he claimed to be. And as he passed through, or they were going toward Jer Jerusalem, they were going, as they approached Jericho, they came across the blind beggar. As they were passing through Jericho, the Bible says he came across a man whose name was Zacchaeus whom we talked about in great detail, who was a tax gatherer, who was a man that was an example as God would prove that even God could change the heart of a man who was as evil as a tax collector in that culture. And it says that he humbled himself and he received Christ gladly when he heard the news that he could be forgiven by God through Christ. He received him gladly. And the Bible says today salvation came to this man's household. And there was excitement and enthusiasm as all these things were taking place. And you have to put yourself in that position to picture what was going on all around there. And as they approached Jerusalem to top it all off, and as they entered into the city, the, the, the crowds or the multitudes of people, as they saw Jesus coming, he was riding on a colt. And as he was riding this colt, it was a sign that he was a king. And he was a, a peaceful king who was entering the city. And the crowds and the multitudes of people began to praise God. And they began to sing the Psalms. And they were worshiping him as God. And they recognized that he was the Messiah. And there was a sense of excitement and enthusiasm that was incredible that was taking place. And if you can picture it for a moment, he's riding into town and the people are taking off their robes and, and, their, and their cloaks and they're throwing them in front of them. They get palm branches and they're waving them and laying them in front of them and the multitudes are singing. And not only are they singing the songs, but what they're saying is, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And literally the phrase means this, that salvation has come from above. Could you imagine being there and seeing all of this? It was incredible what was going on. And yet in a moment's time, all the momentum would shift. Now, I don't know if any of you are into watching this basketball tournament that's on, this tournament called March Madness. How many of you are watching any of that? Oh, it's exciting. I mean, for those of you who aren't watching it, it's probably not. That's why you're not watching it. But those who are watching, it's exciting stuff. And what's exciting about it is there's always things that are going on, and there's always momentum that you see just building, and all of a sudden the momentum can change in a moment. And uh, what's interesting is they were showing a clip of a high school championship basketball game, and I'm not sure exactly what, what state it was being played in, played in, but the team was down by two points. And there were six seconds left in the game. 
And uh, what happened was that the ball was taken out by this team. The guy dribbles all the way down the court. He kicks it out on the wing. The guy shoots a shot with two seconds left, and it goes in, and they're up by one, and, you know, they're, they're convinced they won a game. There's 1.8 seconds left. They're going crazy. They're celebrating. They're jumping up and down. Well, the other team takes the ball out, and they're not 15 feet away from where they took the ball out. The guy just turns, throws the ball like that. It goes all the way to the other end of the court, banks off the backboard and into the basket, and they win. Now, the team's celebrating over here because they had already won. They thought they won. They're celebrating. They're jumping up and down. And all of a sudden, they, they see the other team jumping up and down. They're not supposed to be jumping up and down. Only we can jump up and down. You can't jump up and down. You lost. You don't jump up and down. And they all turned around, and they saw what happened. They just went, you're kidding. And the announcer that's doing the game was like going crazy because they won. Oh, no, they didn't win. Oh, they, they won. No, wait. No, they won. Oh. And it changed just like that. You know, and I was thinking about it, and, and it's the only, and it's, it's, it's the only mental picture that I can come up with that helps me to understand how the momentum shifted as Jesus went into Jerusalem. They were convinced that God was setting up his kingdom. They were convinced that Jesus was going into town, establishing God's kingdom here on earth. They were going to be uh, eliminating Rome as the oppressors in their life. They were convinced of that. And yet all of a sudden, during that week, everything changed. One of them was going to even deny him. One of them was going to, uh, first of all, one of them was going to betray him. Jesus said, one of you are going to betray me. One of you are going to stab me in the back. You're going to turn me in. And they're all like, well, no, that can't be. I mean, we're, we already got everything planned. We already even know. We've been arguing for years about who was going to sit on your right and on your left. I mean, we got this all worked out. What do you mean one of us is going to betray you? And as he goes into the garden to pray, he asks him, would you please stay awake with me? And every time he comes back, they're sound asleep. Why are they sound asleep? Well, because they don't get it. They're convinced he's going to set up a kingdom. They're convinced they need all the rest they can get. They're convinced that I need to catch up on my sleep. We're going to be busy once we take over. But he, they kept sleeping. And then as he's arrested, they wake up and they all run away. Peter follows in a distance, checking it all out. But when he's challenged, even Peter denies even knowing him. Denies him to a little girl that says, I know you, buddy. You were with him. No, you don't know. I, 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 you're, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And the Bible says he began to swear at her, to curse her. And he denied even knowing Jesus. The momentum shifts incredibly in this last week as we see the events that are leading up to the crucifixion. And today, in a very dramatic way, we're going to see the trial of what I would call really the trial of all times. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke's account in Luke chapter 23, as we look at this trial of all times. In Luke 23, we see the trial that takes place. Could you imagine? Can you imagine what it must have felt like to go from that Sunday to that Friday to that Thursday night and then all the events that led up to the crucifixion? I mean, it's, it'd be unbelievable to experience that as a human being. And yet, this is exactly what they faced. We read this in chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke, starting with verse 1. It says, Then the whole body of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. It says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. 
And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no fault in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. It says, But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at this time. It says, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. It says, and he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. It says, and the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enmity with each other. And Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined before him before you, I have found no guilt in him regarding the charges which you've made. No, nor has Herod, for he sent back him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. It says, and I will therefore punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release one of them at the feast, one prisoner. And they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection that was made in the city and also for murder. And Pilate wanting to release Jesus addressed them again. But they kept on calling out saying, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence and their demand should be granted. And he released the man they were, they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. You know, recently there have been uh, some trials and grand jury investigations that have um, maybe generated much media attention, and uh, some have even tagged to one case not long ago, the trial of the century. And I got to tell you this, if that was the trial of the century, there's no doubt about this being the trial of all times. Because as we look at this, we're going to learn much about not only God's plan, but also the condition of humanity. And uh, there's some things that we're going to take a look at as we go through this because what's fascinating is as we learn from this account in Luke's gospel, Jesus is put on trial before both Pilate and Herod. And uh, this was just one stage of the travesty of justice that we will see that leads up to Christ's execution on the cross. Uh, what's particularly significant is that uh, as you go through this entire account, encounter can be summed up by Pilate's own pronouncement. And he says this, he says, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. In the, the New International Version, it says, I find no basis for a charge against him. I, I don't see what, what you're doing. I don't understand what's going on here. And what's interesting is it was a legal phrase that meant there was not one shred of evidence that was presented in this trial that would have Jesus to be found guilty of the charges. Everything that was brought up, as we'll see, was a lie. The accusations were not true. And uh, as we go through this, there's five observations that I want to make that will help us to understand what was going on at this particular time. The first observation is a very simple one, and that's this. The accusations before Pilate weren't very convincing at all. 
In fact, if you've got your Bibles and you want to take a look and go through it, it's fascinating that three times in verse 4, for example, Pilate said to the chief priests and multitudes, I find no guilt in him. You might want to underline it or circle it or whatever, but also in verse 14 he says the same thing. And said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found what? I have found no guilt in this man. He goes on in verse 22 and says it again. Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt. He continues to go through this. And what's fascinating to me is that, you know, justice and legality ruled the Roman world. They're very particular about their sense of righteousness, their sense of justice. And as we go through, we'll also notice that, you know, Rome, for example, was one of those world empires that had a very high standard as far as justice was concerned. Yes, they were a world ruler, but they wanted to rule with a certain sense of righteous ruling, a certain sense that there was a standard that was to be obeyed. And they understood that. And the procurators, procurators above all, understood Roman law. And they understood, as we look at this, that there were some things that they could find people guilty of and other things that were just not something within their jurisdiction to be able to do. And they were very sensitive about that. And in fact, when I was studying and going through this, I was reminded of, a, of an experience that the Apostle Paul had in the book of Acts. Look at chapter 16 for a second. Some of you may recall this particular situation, but it relates to what I'm trying to get across as it, as it comes to that which we're t talking about, and that's the trial of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 35, we find in this particular account that the apostle Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. And they were thrown into prison because they had, they had um, commanded that a spirit of divination or a spirit that had entered into a woman that would make these people, they were making a fortune because of the spirit that was living within this woman and this spirit would follow them around in the body of this woman and, and say, you know, what do we have to do with you? You know, you're prophets of God. They were just, the spirits were making a mess of everything that was going on. So finally, Paul said, you know, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to, to get, just leave her alone, to get out, to take a hike. You know, open translation. But anyway, you know, and that's what happened. And so what happened was the people that were using this woman to make money because they were telling the future, the, the, the future, they were upset about it. So they throw Paul and Silas in prison. And this is where we pick up in verse 35. It says, now day, daytime came. This is after they were beaten in prison. This is after they were arrested and thrown in prison. And this was after also the Philippian jailer thought that they had escaped and they didn't escape and he had given his life to Christ because of this experience. Now in verse 35 it says this, now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now therefore come out and go in peace. But notice this, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without a trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? He's saying, I don't think so. No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Oops. This is when the policemen reported these words to the magistrates. Uh-oh, they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them, and then they departed. You see what happened? They had taken Paul and Silas. They had beat them without a trial. They had thrown them into prison without a trial. And then they found out later that they were Roman citizens. And they were entitled to all the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen. They were entitled to a fair trial before they were accused. They certainly were entitled to a trial, and they needed to be found guilty before they could be punished. 
And they were very much aware of what happened. These magistrates went, oh man, we just, we just made a huge mistake. We just perverted our whole justice system. And the only way we're going to get away with this is if we can quietly just get them to leave without letting anybody know what happened. And Paul understood that too and said, no, you tell them to come and get us out. Because I like to tell them a few things about what it means to pervert justice. And I'm sure as they came and had their little conversation, the Apostle Paul set them straight on what it meant to hold a standard and make sure they were held by that same standard, which is fascinating. So as we go back to Luke chapter uh, 23, for example, we see that now this trial has taken place and Pilate had the authority to release Jesus or to kill him. He could do either one, and it was all within the framework of, of the judicial system that they had at that time. And whatever he decided would be backed by the emperor. So whatever Pilate decided to do, he could release him or he could kill him, but Pilate also understood, but you know what? But I can only do that, and I can't do it arbitrarily. I can only do it by holding him to a standard that has been set. And so they come to him, and he says basically to them, in verse uh, 1 of, of 23, says, the whole body of them arose, speaking of the religious leaders, and they brought them to Jesus, and they brought Jesus to Pilate. And look what it says. And they began to accuse him, saying, okay, what are the charges that they bring against Jesus? Number one, they say this. Well, let's see. He was misleading our nation. He was misleading your nation? How was he misleading your nation? Um... Nothing specific was brought. Well, tell us how. What was he doing? And, and besides that, what does it mean? Who cares that he was misleading your nation anyway? That has nothing to do with Rome. Count number one, misleading the nation. Pilate says, you're not guilty. Well, okay, well then wait a minute. Let's see. He was also, oh, here's a good one. He was forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Was he really? Well, let's examine the evidence. Turn back to Matthew chapter 22 for a second. These same religious leaders came to Jesus one day and they posed a question for him. And it says this in chapter 22 of the book of Matthew, verse 15, says that then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap Jesus in what he said. We're going to set him up. We're going to trap him. Somehow we're going to trap him. We're going to get him to say with his own words that which we'll be able to use later to indict him as guilty of the charges that we bring. See, you know what's really fascinating? Think about all the stuff that we see going on right now in the news and with depositions and things of that nature. The thing that, that, that always sinks the ship for any person is that they indict themselves in their own testimony. And if you'll notice that, they continue to go back to, well, what this person said on this particular date, what did he say to the questions that were asked? And now what is he saying today? And there's a contradiction there. Oh, therefore, you're obstructing justice. Therefore, you're guilty. Therefore, you've lied. Therefore, you're busted. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to get Jesus to say something that later they can bring up against him at a future date. They were just getting their arsenal ready. And this is what they said. They said that they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? It says, is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Look at Jesus. But Jesus perceived their malice, their evil intention, what they were trying to do, and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? says, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
and notice their response. And learning this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. But they still brought up the same accusation before Pilate. Hey, he told us not to pay our taxes. That's not true. Indictment number two, saying not to pay taxes, the evidence, not guilty. He never said that. Never even implied that. Never even led anybody to believe that. And said very specifically, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the thing that are God's, the thing that are God's. And he left at that. Now the third thing, and the thing that would be very important to uh, Pilate in this particular case, is that they accused him, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now the fact that Jesus claimed to be Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, wouldn't really be much of a, a problem for Pilate because it had nothing to do with Rome. But if he said he was a king, then he'd have to deal with that because there was a problem there, and that is a king of whose domain or a king of whose kingdom, and how does your kingdom affect what we're doing overall as, an, as a, the empire of Rome? And so Pilate said to him, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. And so Pilate said, you know what? This guy's not guilty of what you're accusing him of. There's no guilt here at all. What was the real charges that they brought and the reason they brought him to Pilate? Well, we learn that in verse 66 of chapter 22. Look what it says. It says, And when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes. And they led Jesus away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, then tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you're not going to believe me. He said, And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. It fascinates me when I run across individuals who try to claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. It is amazing to me, and they'll even use the Bible as their source proof. Let me just explain something very clearly to all of you, and that is this. Jesus did not allow for any other options but these two. He is not a good teacher. He is not a prophet. He is not a good man. He is either God or he is not. And that is the only choice that we have in understanding his claim. He is either the Son of God or he is not. Which is he to you? Because he asked Peter the same thing. He said, hey, what are the people, who do people say that I am? They said, you're John the Baptist, you're a prophet, you're a teacher, you're blah, 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 you're whatever. He said, okay, I'm not asking them anymore. I'm going to ask you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He didn't deny that at all. And in fact, here at his trial, as we see that precedes it, he said very clearly, I am the Son of God. I am the Savior of the world. Even before Abraham existed, he said, I am, equaling himself to God. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And the only options we have are we either accept him as such or we, we reject his claim. 
the religious leaders in verse 71 said this, what further testimony do we now need for we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. What was the real charge that they brought before Pilate but they couldn't bring before Pilate because Pilate really didn't care about it and that was this. He claimed to be God. He blasphemed before God. We want to kill him for that claim and that's exactly what the charge was but you know what? Pilate wouldn't have cared about that. You want me to put this guy to death because he claims to be God? You know how many gods we have in, in, uh, in, in Rome? We got gods for everything. Big deal. What's the big deal about him claiming to be God? But they didn't even say that. They couldn't say that because they knew they couldn't get him convicted on that. So they made up some other things. They made up some other testimony, which is really fascinating because look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. As all these people were brought up, all these false witnesses that were testifying at Pilate's uh, trial... It's fascinating, Jesus' response. And there's something I think we can all learn from this, and it's important that we see it for what it really is, because in verse 11 of chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor. The governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, look, it says, He made no answer. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? says, and he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Can you imagine? This is not the first trial that Pilate ever proceeded over. And can you imagine what was going on? He was blown away by Jesus' presence and his, his demeanor because he was saying to him, listen to all these charges against you. Don't you have anything to say to defend yourself? I mean, every other person that's ever gone on trial and ask yourself this question, when you are falsely accused by other people, what's your first response? Our first response, my first response is to defend myself. My first response may even to be angry that someone would say something like that. My first response would be even to strike back when, 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 I'm, when I'm criticized like that or accused falsely. My first response wasn't Jesus' first response, and because of that, I need to learn something from his response. Because he is to be our example. I want to be more like Jesus in the way I conduct myself on a daily basis. You know, forget about all this. I want to be more like Mike. You know what I mean? Everybody wants to be more like Michael Jordan. Well, let's hey, God's people, we all need to be more like Jesus in how we conduct ourselves on a daily basis. When you are falsely accused, when I am falsely accused, I'm learning something from how Jesus conducted himself as he was being falsely accused by a parade or a circus of events. And he just stood there. And you know how he answered? He just answered simply and he answered truthfully. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to attack those who attacked him. He didn't accuse those. He didn't revile in return. He didn't cast insults when he was insulted. He didn't do any of all that. Why? Because in 1 Peter 2 it says, he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. God sees everything. He knows what's going on. It's a, it, it's, it's a mockery. It's, it's contemptible what takes place in our society when people accuse another person of something and then they've got to defend themselves. The whole system needs to change. And I don't know whether any of the accusations or anything that's going on in Washington are, are true or are not true, but I, but I do know and I understand this. If someone accuses someone else of something or of a crime, they should have the burden of proof put on them. And if they are false in what they accused them of, then they should pay all legal costs. I think it's a tra travesty of justice that any person that accuses another person forces the person accused to have to pay to defend themselves, oftentimes just totally damaging them or, or, or ruining their life. We need to change that. That's just not right. And as we see what happens here, Jesus simply defended himself by just telling the truth. 
Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. A fascinating understanding or insight as to how we should respond to people that wrongly accuse us. 1 Timothy 6, look what it says in verse 11. Jesus responded with the truth and he was perfectly righteous and bold in his response. He's an example for all of us. Forget about trying to be like anybody else, but be like Jesus. Look what it says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. He says, you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. And look what it says, and make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The good confession. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and, the, and of Jesus Christ who testified, look, the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in, in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Look what he says. Who, who confessed the good confession before Pilate. He told the truth of who he was. He didn't back down as far as his, his, who he was, as far as Messiah was concerned. He was as he said, I am as you say, I'm the king of the Jews. I am as you say. He didn't back down. He didn't cower down when he was, when he was pressed by opposition. He confessed the, the good confession. He just told the truth simply and forthrightly. You know, so many of us as Christians, we, we cower away in our testimony before the world. You know, I thought about this this past week. I had the opportunity to give my testimony to Christian Businessmen's Committee. And I thought as I was standing there and I was sharing what Jesus Christ did in my life, how easy it is to think, you know what? Most of the people out here think I am nuts. I know that because I sat there and listened to the same thing and thought the guy I was listening to was nuts too. I said, I mean, and you just know that. And it was kind of like the spirit of timidity that comes upon you when you stand up and say, you know what, what I'm about to share with you, you people are going to think I'm crazy. But I'm compelled to share it because it's the truth. Jesus Christ changed my life. I've never been the same since. You may not understand it, you may not believe it, but I'm just going to tell you, that's the good confession. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's exactly what Jesus did. I am who you say that I am. Now, the interesting thing as we go through this, the second thing that we look is this. Now, as you see, as we're reading through this, it says, but they insisted. Pilate said he's not guilty. They insisted. No, he's guilty. It says, look what he did. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he's come all this way. And if you don't stop him, he's not going to stop. Now, Pilate is thinking, how am I going to get out of this mess that I'm in right now? Well, he heard the magic word. The magic word is what? Did I hear you say Galilee? Did I hear you say Galilee? Oh, well, you know what? If he's from Galilee, is this man a Galilean? He's a Galilean? Oh, great. You know what? This isn't my jurisdiction. Woo-hoo-hoo! I can just picture the relief that he felt. I heard Galilee. I think I got an angle. I'm getting off the hook here. So he says, I, you know what? I, I can't even hear this case. Oh, I'm sorry, this is, this is a municipal case, or this is a superior court case, or this is a Supreme Court case. Oh, you know what? I don't have to render any decision because this isn't something I'm supposed to be involved in anyway. So, whoo, let's send him to Herod. And that's exactly what he did. On hearing this, Pilate asked if he was a Galilean. When he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. And you know what? The appearance before Herod added nothing but contempt and mockery to the whole scene. Look what it says. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. Isn't that fascinating? 
Herod's expectations were unfulfilled because as Jesus comes to Herod, what does Herod want to do? Herod had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I'm sure Herod heard about everything that's been going on. Herod heard about the blind man that now could see. Herod heard about everything that Jesus was doing, man, because we know that. The Bible says the multitudes were, were talking, man. Everything was stirred up. Everybody was talking about Jesus. Herod probably heard how Jesus rode in on a colt and that they laid their cloaks down and he rode in as a king. And he heard all of that and he wanted to find out what was going on. And Herod for a long time wanted to see Jesus. Jesus. But why did Herod want to see Jesus? Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Now there's two people that want to see Jesus. What's the difference between the two? Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus because he heard he could be forgiven of his sin. He heard that God loves sinners, that Jesus Christ went and ate even with tax gatherers, which he was, and other sinners. He heard that he forgave sin. And Jesus wanted to see, I mean, and, uh, and Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus because Jesus forgives sin. And because of that, Zacchaeus humbled himself before God, threw himself at the mercy of Jesus Christ, and said, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, because of that confession of sin, agreeing with God, of, of what God says about you, you're guilty. He says, because you've done that, and you believe that I can forgive sins, your sins are forgiven, and Zacchaeus received them gladly. Now, isn't that fascinating? Now, consider this other guy who says, I've been looking forward to seeing Jesus for a long time. But the question is this, why is he looking for Jesus? He's not looking for forgiveness. He's not looking to confess his sin before God. He's not looking to throw himself upon the mercy of God. Why does he want to see Jesus? He wants to see Jesus do some trick. He wants to see Jesus do what he wants him to do. He wants to see Jesus maybe perform a miracle of some sort. He was like all the multitudes of people that followed Jesus after Jesus said, fed all the multitudes that were following him. Why? Because Jesus was a meal ticket. Oh, this is great. I'll never have to go to work again. If I follow Jesus, he's going to feed us all the time. I don't have to work again. He didn't follow Jesus because he needed forgiveness and he believed that he was the, the son of God. He wanted to see Jesus because he wanted Jesus to do for him what we, he wanted him done in his life. Now let me ask you a question. Isn't that the same true today? Why do people go to church? Why do people go to Bible study? Here's what I found. There's two people. There's the Zacchaeuses of the world who go because they want to see Jesus for who he really is. They want to know, is he really God? Can he really forgive my sins? Can he offer me eternal life? Can he do the things that he said? I need forgiven. I need a relationship with God. And I'm going to go and check it out. Then there's the other people that go. Why do they go? Well, I just want to check into this Jesus thing. I want to check it out. I heard a lot about him. I've seen him change people's lives. I'm just going to check it out. See what he can do for me. I'm having a tough time in business right, right now. I'll see if this Jesus thing would help maybe get me over this little hump in my life. Maybe I'm having a tough time in my marriage right now. Maybe Jesus, this Jesus thing can do a little bit here to uh, help our marriage, you know, turn out better. You know, that, that, I'm just looking for Jesus to do for me what I need him to do, not to throw myself on his mercy and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because I'm not guilty of anything. See, that was Herod. That's why he wanted to see Jesus. And you know what's interesting to me is this. Jesus didn't even answer him. Look at what it says. It says from what he had heard about him, he wanted to see him. He hoped to see him perform some miracle. It says that he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Jesus wouldn't even answer him. And you know why he didn't answer him? Because earlier he said to his disciples, he says, you go tell that fox, Herod. You go tell the fox, that sly, cunning fox who tries to set people up and destroy them. You go tell Herod, that fox, that sneak, that snake, the one who put John the Baptist to death. You go tell him that here, this is who I am. You go tell him. He knew Herod was just trying to set him up. He didn't want to see him. He knew his heart. He didn't want forgiven. He didn't believe he was, he was guilty of anything. And Jesus didn't even answer him. Herod is on his way to a lost eternity. Herod one day will stand before the bema seat of Jesus Christ, the, white, the white, great white throne judgment seat of Jesus Christ, and he will give an account for the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus didn't even answer him. So what did Herod do? He demonstrated his heart, which God already knew. And that was what? He mocked him. He beat him, which is all illegal too, by the way. And he ridiculed him. And you know what he did? He stuck a robe on him. Oh, you're king? Well, let me just make a big mockery of all of this. And I'll send you back to Pilate. You know, what's interesting is, notice that last line, and don't miss this. It says, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. <laughs> isn't that an interesting statement? And isn't that the way it always is? The enemies of God will always join forces against God. They can't stand each other. They don't want to be with each other. But if they've got a common enemy, it's God and, the, and God's people. And they'll all get together when it comes time to opposing God. And I was thinking, you know, that great battle at the end of all time where all the nations of the world will gather together and oppose Jesus Christ and his people. Isn't that fascinating, the depravity of man? It goes on and says this, that the attempt of Pilate to release Jesus was absolute proof of his innocence. It was absolute proof of his innocence. Isn't that interesting? If there was any guilt in Jesus at all, Pilate would have been glad. Not only glad, but he would have been constrained by law to find him guilty. He would have had to find him guilty. But the problem was he couldn't find him guilty because he wasn't guilty of anything. It says he called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. He didn't do that. I've examined him in your presence. I find no basis of your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll just punish him and I'll send him, send him away. Look what he says. Hey, look, I didn't find him guilty. I sent him to Herod. It was Herod's jurisdiction. Herod sent him back to us. You can see that. Look at him. He's got the robe on and they beat him and you know, they, they abused him and, and, and he's not guilty of anything. I can't find him guilty. Herod didn't find him guilty. I can't do anything about this. The right legal thing to do was say no. I can't. I got to let him go. But you know what's interesting is they couldn't do that. But what's really fascinating is this. Read this in Matthew chapter 27 when you have a moment, and that's this. Do you realize that God, through a dream, warned Pilate's wife that Pilate shouldn't have anything to do with any of this? And Pilate's wife came to Pilate and said, look, I was troubled in a dream. And God warned that we should have nothing to do with this. You need to have nothing to do with this. You need to let this man go. Tell me God's not merciful. Tell me God doesn't try to reach us with the truth. There's no one going to stand before the great white throne of judgment that won't stand there one day and say, yeah, you did try to reach out to me. Yeah, you did pre bring people into my life that confronted me with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, I did reject those claims. God loves people. And it's his desire that everyone would be saved. 
He sends people all over the world, out in the mission field. He sends you to your community. He sends you to your office. He sends you out to your schools or, 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 or uh, to your athletic fields. He sends you into your neighborhoods. He sends all of us everywhere with the message that God loves people, but you know what? That we're on our way to hell unless we confess our sin and agree with God that we're guilty as charged and accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. See, and, and this, this attempt by Pilate to release Jesus was proof of his innocence. He couldn't leave, let a guilty man go. He wanted to let him go, but he couldn't do it. You know, what's interesting is that Pilate realized that their whole motivation was envy. You know why they were envious? Because they were religious leaders, and they wanted people to follow them instead of following God's will. And when somebody confronts people with the truth of the word of God and says, follow God, we must obey God, we must not obey man, there's going to be people out there who like to be followed by people. They like the attention. They want people coming to them as if they have the answer to everything. And you know what? As a leader, a godly leader, whether it's in your home or your business or in a church or whatever, as a godly leader, our responsibility is to turn people to the word of God and to follow this and submit to the authority of God in their life. Not to follow me, not to follow some other leader, not to follow anybody, but that leader should always be telling other people to follow the word of God and the truth of God's word and to follow God. And when man is going in a direction opposite of the word of God, then we must submit to the authority of God, confess our sin, and turn from it, and follow God and His will. You know, these religious leaders, if they had been seeking out the will of God, and had been searching Scripture to find out God's will instead of their own will, would have seen all of the evidence. And like the parrot, they would have walked out of the freezer saying, I confess what I've done is wrong, forgive me. I need to be forgiven. And they would have examined the evidence. They would have saw the blind, the blind could see. They would have saw the dead were raised. They would have saw the triumphal entry that, that God himself had predicted 173,000 days before the day to the exact day when Jesus would ride into town. They would have seen all of that. Why? Because they would have been searching for the truth and the truth is the word of God. And instead of, no, that's not what they wanted to do. They closed their eyes and their ears to the truth and they wanted their own agenda to be fulfilled. The prayer of God's people should always be, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. The attempt of Pilate to release him was absolute proof of his innocence. But you know what? Look at it says. Hey, they continue to press charges against him. And Pilate, trying to compromise, does what most political leaders do, unfortunately, and that's this. He said, oh, you know what? Well, how about if I just punish him and let him go? Because I can't really make a stand because it wouldn't be politically correct to say he's innocent and I'm going to let him go regardless of what you say. How about if I throw you a bone and we'll just punish him, we'll beat him a little bit, and then everybody will be happy and we'll all move on with our day. He doesn't do that. Which is interesting because here's the attitude of the religious leaders and this is what caused them to be condemned. With one voice they cried out, away with this man. No, you're not just going to punish him. You're not going to do what you want to do. We want you to do this. Release Barabbas to us. Now here's a fascinating thing. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. What was one of the charges they brought against Jesus? He's trying to incite the people. What did Barabbas do? He was found guilty of inciting the people. Let's see, who are we going to let loose? Well, you know what? Well, let's let Barabbas go. Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them and he said, Why? What crime has he committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and I'll release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. Whew! Peer pressure. An adult version of peer pressure. Group numbing. 
This guy knew the right thing to do. He was warned by God. His wife was warned by God in a dream that he shared, she shared with Pilate. And look what he did. He still did the wrong thing. He was still more interested in being politically correct than doing what was right. And you know what? And because of that, he will be held accountable for all of eternity. He sold out. He did what was wrong, and it led to his downfall. The encouragement I get from all this is this. You and I know the right thing to do in every area of life because God's Word clearly tells us. Regardless of the peer pressure, regardless of all the pressure put on you by people around you, regardless of pressure put on you by people that you feel are very close to you, the reality is this. You will never get off the hook by saying, they made me do it. Pilate tried to wash his hand and said, I have nothing to do with this. But God says, you will be held accountable for it. Some of us have led that excuse in our own lives. Well, I, I really, God, you know I really didn't want to do it, but I had to do it because they made me do it. Hey, let me tell you something. You and I are individually accountable for our decisions regardless of the pressure that's put on us to do the wrong thing. And so my encouragement to you is very simple. Do the right thing. You will never go wrong doing right. Pilate should have learned, as the parrot learned, that there was a time that you take a stand and you just do what's right. Because it's right. Very simple. And that leads to our fifth and final observation. And really, if you look at this, this is incredible. Pilate's act of releasing Barabbas demonstrated the real purpose of Christ's death. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. Isn't that interesting? Everything that we see is all in the plan of God. Everything. God's got it all under control. Jesus wasn't released, and Barabbas was. And it was according to God's plan. And if you question that in closing, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18, we read this. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And Jesus Christ died, the just for the unjust. Don't miss that. That was God's plan from the very beginning. Listen to me. On one hand was a man guilty of nothing, who knew no sin. And he was executed in the place of a man who was guilty. On the other hand, Barabbas was a man who was guilty. He was guilty as charged, and they all knew it. He had been already condemned. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of insurrection. And you know what? And he was set free. And you know what, folks? That's the point of the cross. Very simply put, that is exactly the point of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our substitute for our sin. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that you and I are guilty before God as charged by God. That's bad news. But the good news is this, that Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, is our substitute for our guilt. The guilty, us, are set free from the judgment of God because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. 
Don't misunderstand what's going on here because this is all part of the plan of God. Barabbas was set free to teach us the truth of the, of the mercy of God. He was guilty, he was set free, Jesus was innocent and knew no sin and died for us. That's it. That's the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question in closing. The only way that you and I could ever get to heaven is by believing that Jesus Christ died as our substitute on the cross for our sins. Now, saying that generally isn't very conf uh, confronting or very convicting. So I want to close with something very specific. I'm going to tell you that there was a point in my life where I believed that Jesus Christ died as my substitute on the cross for my sin. I know very clearly the day it was, and I was reminded as I shared it the other day. It was February 16, 1978. The date isn't as important, except in my case, it was such a dramatic thing that I've never been able to forget it because that was the day that I believed that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and you need to answer it in the quietness of your own heart. What was the day or when did you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was a substitute for your sin so that God would never hold you accountable and judge you for it? When did you do that in your life? It was like when Peter said, who do you say that I am? And they all said a whole bunch of stuff. And the only thing that mattered anymore to Peter was, but who, did you, who do you say that I am? And if we could go around the room, I'd like to ask that question. So I'm just going to ask it and you ask yourself that. When did you believe that Jesus Christ died as your substitute? If you have never done that, you need to do that and be right with God. You need to do that today because today is the day of the Holy Spirit. Today is the day of the Lord. There is no guarantee that you'll ever walk out of here alive. You may be struck dead as you sit here. You could get hit by a car when you leave here. You can have a heart attack later in the day. You could choke on food at lunch. Hey, you can have a really bad day. Or you can have the greatest day of your life, the single greatest event that will ever take place if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you accept him today for the forgiveness of your sin. The Bible says to as many as received him, to them he gave the privilege to be called a child of God to those who believe in his name. Folks, those are the only two choices that God gives us. Jesus made it very clear. You either accept him as your Lord and Savior and a substitute for your sin, or you reject him and you turn and you take your chances. And the Bible says that whoever denies him, that Jesus will deny him before his Father in heaven, and you will spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. It's your choice, but it's your choice, and it's a wonderful thing that God gives us that. He loves you, and he wants you to make the right choice. Father, we just pray right now for those who are listening and maybe for the first time their eyes are open, their ears are open that they can, they can hear and see who you really are. They understand by this event, this trial, this mockery that took place that it was all a part of your plan, that Jesus Christ died as our substitute for our sin. We see a guilty man being set free in the person of Barabbas and yet we see Christ go willingly to the cross to give himself up for us. God, we just thank you and we marvel at this grace, this wonderful grace. You say it's by your grace through faith that we're saved. And it's a gift from you, not of ourselves, so no one could ever brag. God, I just pray for those who aren't sure of their relationship with you, that today, right now, in the quietness of their heart, that like Zacchaeus, they would come to see you for who you really are, that they would confess that they're guilty before you and repent from their sin and believe that Jesus Christ died in their place that they wouldn't be like Herod who just comes to manipulate you and your plan or your program to see how you can add something to their life. But in a humble heart, you say that broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will never despise. But in the humbleness and humility and a broken heart that right now they pray that Jesus Christ would come into their life. 
a simple prayer, Lord, forgive me that I'm a sinner. Forgive me that I've always manipulated things and wanted things my way, and today I understand that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I ask him to come into my life to forgive me. I believe what you say that this moment, from this moment on, I'm a child of God. I believe what you say that I have eternal life that's given to me and that there's a place reserved at this very moment for me in heaven. And I look forward to what you'll do in my life from this day forward. And I'll go about making the good confession of faith that I'll tell everybody and anybody that will listen of your wonderful plan for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.